Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we're going to be talking about how to recapture the trust of your audience in order to make your journalism more sustainable, with a focus on how to do this within resource-scarce newsrooms. We hear increasingly about the US reader donation model, which has enabled newsrooms across the Atlantic to better fund local journalism and move away from this reliance on ad revenue. But what holds the UK back from doing this? According to the latest Reuters Digital News report, even though the US has lower levels of trust towards the media, it still manages to get a higher percentage of people to pay. So the problem that needs solving in the UK is really around how to provide value to new and existing readers and finding the best ways to ask them to pay. Here to give us the US perspective on how American media is managing to do this is Mary Walter Brown, the co-founder and CEO of the News Revenue Hub. It's a non-profit organisation which provides consultation and training to help news publishers develop new revenue models. She's also the former publisher and COO of the non-profit community-level news outlet Voice of San Diego, where she built out its membership program and grew overall revenue by nearly $1 million over a seven-year period. She says that voluntary donation models are the way to go, especially for local news providers who do not want to wall off their public interest journalism. Stay tuned for lessons on how to introduce this into your newsroom. Don't go anywhere. Mary, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. Thanks so much for jumping on the show. Thanks for having me. Would you share with our audience a little known fact about you, please? Ooh, a little known fact. Uh, Early in my career, straight out of college, uh, I was working at a local origination cable television station. And I had my own little segment called Out and About with Mary Walter. And I had to go around um, Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky and find interesting things for people to do over the weekend. So I found myself doing um, everything from scuba diving to flying in airplanes to biking, um, a, a range of things that I wasn't particularly good at, um, but was thrust into. So I, I say that was a, a great first training ground for being a journalist in the future. <laughs> There's one way to develop a knack for uh, hitting the ground running. Did you discover any secret talents in, in that quest? No, I discovered a lot of things I don't like to do. Like what? Uh, Like scuba diving. Yeah. (laughs) Like scuba diving. (laughs) Mary, we've got a lot to talk about um, in the domain of this idea of creating a sustainable future for journalism. What are the right uh, ways to go in in order to fund the journalism that we do? Um, Interestingly, uh, the other week we had the Reuters Digital News Report come out with lots of very interesting findings there about um, willingness to pay for news. Um, obviously, you're out in the US. I'm here in the UK, two slightly different markets, of course. Um, but we see different abilities or, or willingness there to pay for online news. It's 19% in the US. It's just 9% in the UK. From your position, how do you explain that difference? Um, well, I think it's probably been such a focus point for us in the US to to require people to pay for news in some capacity. And I think we've been thrust into that position out of necessity with the sort of implosion of of the newspaper industry in the U.S., you know, since 2007. So we've had to figure out creative new ways um, to pay for journalism. Um, And so, you know, really what we focus on at the News Revenue Hub is how do we achieve two goals? How do we create 
a business model for journalism that allows content to be free and accessible for everyone and doesn't wall anyone out, while at the same time earning the trust and investment um, of those news consumers to voluntarily support by making a donation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we've had to really explore voraciously you know, what it takes to really build that type of relationship with news consumers such that they understand the important role that journalism plays in their life. They understand why news and information is so important and how it can help them live fuller lives. Um, But they also understand now how it's funded in this new era where advertising uh, and and classifieds are no longer paying the reporter salaries. Um, We've had to just be really a lot more transparent, I think, in the U.S. Um, And as a result, I think we've obviously shown that people are willing to pay for news and information that they find essential. Sure. And I think that's the big takeaway from COVID and and more recently Ukraine, that there is certainly a premium on public interest journalism and maybe those concerns around paywalls coming out. The converse picture around, and you mentioned trust, it's very interesting. Trust in the UK is higher than the US, Um, even though we've taken a bit of a nosedive since since Brexit. It's 34%. It's actually 26% in the US. So although our trust towards the news is higher in the UK, we still can't convince those people to pay for news, whereas it's kind of the other way around in the US. It's interesting. I mean, it's a strategy. It's a commitment. It's not something that happened overnight in the US either, right? I mean, we we see it firsthand every day when we begin to engage with the newsroom. It's just like building a relationship and building trust with an individual. Uh, you have to you know, build that rapport, you have to be there, you have to be reliable, you have to be open. Um, You can't always be asking for something, you have to be giving as well. Um, So it it doesn't happen overnight and it takes a strategy and it takes commitment. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times newsrooms jump into this thinking overnight, I'm going to have this brand new revenue stream. And it's just, it's not that simple, like most things in life aren't. Does it suggest that, you know, if by and large, there are a lot of people who won't trust you, is it therefore logical to concentrate and really double down on the ones that do find your community and really try and make the most out of them. Yeah, I think it's a two-prong approach, right? Like, I agree that you have to first go over what we call the low-hanging fruit, you know, the loyal readers who are already bought in to the product you're producing. They already trust the editorial team. They rely on the reporting already. Those people are going to be quick to convert, right? When you help them understand what the new business model is, why you need their voluntary donations, people will give who are already bought in. I think if we only focus on those people, newsrooms are missing an opportunity to broaden their audience, right? We also want to convince the skeptics that this work is being produced with good intentions, with strong editorial integrity, and and really start to peel back some of those layers of distrust by earning that trust and respect. So I think oftentimes we do start to create a bubble and we just keep producing journalism for the people who like and uh, trust the news organization currently. But I think a lot more work can be done um, by doing audience surveys and a lot more audience outreach to understand why some of those people are skeptical and try to address some of their concerns. That's that's super interesting. Is there any evidence of really effective strategies in how to turn around those skeptics, uh, those engagement strategies? Um, what's proven to work? 
if if anything that you've seen. Yeah, and it's it's not just talking at news consumers, it's listening, right? So it's really taking the important feedback that you get from the Reuters report and taking that to the streets of your communities and starting to ask them how they feel about the news and information we're producing. Does it resonate with you? I think what we're seeing in the US is that there is a real disconnection between how many people in many different communities across the United States consume their news and information and want it to be delivered and distributed to them, right? So it's not as simple as just putting it in the newspaper, putting it on a website, putting it in an email newsletter, or putting it on social media. Sometimes it requires going out in those communities and doing grassroots door knocking or having community gatherings um, and going really, really old school, frankly. Boots on the ground, I think, is the, is the good way to put it, isn't it? It is. And that's, you know, a lot of newsrooms don't have uh, the staffing or even the the skills, expertise to do grassroots community engagement, right? You know, they're run by journalists. They're, they're barely staffed up enough to do business development, um, much less going out into the streets of the community and doing, you know, focus groups and listening tours um, and door knocking. Um, so it's it's yet another area in which, you know, we need to raise money and prove the return on investment for for going back out into communities and doing that important work. Super interesting. There's another element of that, which is, say you've gone out to the ground, gone out to your community, and you've got the insights, you then have to implement it. And, and that might even involve internal resistance and, and changing the way you fundamentally do things. Um, how difficult was that and how you know significant is that element to actually this conversation around a sustainable future for journalism, the whole idea, premise of embracing maybe doing things differently? You have to have that commitment. It can be equally damaging to go out and ask the community what it needs and then not deliver it back to them after they've gone to the effort of painstakingly. Hey, we asked for this. Where is it? You asked, we told you, and yet you're still doing the exact same thing. So yeah, there, you have to have that completed feedback loop, right? Which is you have to be able to go back to your newsroom. The editorial team has to be open and, and willing to listen and bought into it. And then you have to be creative. I mean, I think the most successful newsrooms in the US right now, especially the ones that we work with that are um, mostly nonprofit and very community centered just at their core, at their mission, um, they are extraordinarily experimental in how they produce their journalism. They're doing everything from podcasts to um, TikTok to you know Instagram um, and to actually just going out and doing good old-fashioned coffees and happy hours in, in their communities to deliver news and information. Can you single a few out for me? Sure. I mean, we work with a lot of really creative ones. Um, some of my favorites are Oakland Side, uh, in Oakland, California, was really founded on this premise of going first to the community and asking what their needs were. Um, there are startups um, coming up in Cleveland, funded by the American Journalism Project, that are completely flipping the switch on how journalism is created, starting at the ground up, uh, working with documenters. Um, who are just citizen journalists going to city council meetings, going to school board meetings, documenting it, um, then coming back and turning that into a story in their own words for people in their community. Um, Newshawk uh, in Santa Barbara, The Lens in New Orleans, um, all of these 
newsrooms are very, very community focused and really, really focused on making sure that they're not just serving um, the privileged upper class people of their communities. The News Revenue Hub helps news organisations of all sizes to develop their own loyalty strategies and inspire trust, engagement and eventually a long-term financial commitment with their readers. Last year, it helped the average newsroom it worked with to bring in $334,000 in voluntary individual donations, and that's defined as donations under $10,000. Voluntary reader donations are working in the US, but it's hard to replicate without external support. Why? Well, small newsrooms are typically stretched, and they lack the expertise and time away from their day-to-day duties to forge these type of techniques, leaving them in a state of paralysis, as Mary describes it. The hardest challenge with developing any kind of new strategy in a small team, she's found, is to be stricter and firmer on individual responsibilities. It's often the case that teams are simply spread too thin, meaning people become a jack of all trades and a master of none. If you want to develop effective loyalty and trust strategies, you need people who can put all of their time, energy and focus into doing that job well. Overburden people and the strategy will come out half-baked. We saw um, in our space specifically that newsrooms were primarily made up of journalists. They certainly didn't have people with you know, email marketing uh, experience, with digital uh, fundraising and campaigning experience. Um, they didn't have technology teams who knew how to create technology infrastructure to uh, power um, integrated donation management systems with email marketing. So they didn't have the technology infrastructure, but they also didn't have the talent uh, and staffing infrastructure to do this, do this work. And so um, we needed to be able to provide some type of resource that could be scalable um, to add capacity in these newsrooms. And, and that's what the News Revenue Hub is. We have a technology infrastructure that integrates donation management with email marketing. So small teams can automate a great deal of the outreach to, to their news consumers. And then we train their staff on how to do email marketing, how to do grassroots community engagement, how to put campaign roadmaps together, um, and really how to manage their budget and create uh, goals that are reasonable for converting their audience into donors. What's the most consistent learning curve that these organizations have to go through in order to see that transformation through? Is there anything that really is is internally, you know, if we're talking about very small organizations, um, and at least what we see in the UK is there's a lot of overlapping with roles. There's a lot of ad hoc workflows, which are just, you know, not really well established. What's the big learning curve that these organizations have to go through? I think dedicating someone to doing really strong audience development is usually um, audience development typically in the U.S. um, can mean a lot of different things we found. And um, so when we started to see sort of patterns across, you know, 45 plus newsrooms after a couple of years, we started to notice traffic was sort of plateauing. That means your email list starts to plateau and your membership numbers, your volunteer donors start to plateau. So once we started to like peel back the layers to find out why this was such a consistent pattern across so many newsrooms, we found that there really wasn't someone who was specifically trained in the top of the funnel, who understood search engine optimization, who understood uh, how to write and optimize a website with strong calls to action and lead generation. Um, That was writing strong headlines so that it was 
being picked up on search and social. Um, that's true audience development. What we were finding is there are a lot of people in newsrooms that have audience in their title, right? But they're primarily posting stories on social media. Um, and that's what they're considering audience development. When in reality, there's a lot more strategic and technical skills that are needed to do that job really well. So that was the first sort of revelation is there weren't people in these seats who were properly trained to do this work, nor were they given um, enough time and dedication to focus on it, right? Because they were also writing newsletters. They were also producing podcasts. They were also the multimedia producer. Um, they were also the membership manager. So we really had to go in there and, and advocate for this particular role and help prove how important it is. And then we had to go through trying to help them find and acquire those people in an industry where there's just not that many of them that exist. Um, so the talent pipeline is a real challenge. And so we just try to fill in the gaps. We can actually help them with these different things while they're trying to find a person um, to put in that seat. And, and so we can train them. Did that sometimes mean dropping other priorities and um, discarding things that weren't valuable? Uh, if, if you're talking there about actually redefining roles or getting people to concentrate on other elements of their job, you know, surely there's a way up there and it's not just adding more to the role. You've got to unburden them as well. A hundred percent. You know, sometimes it means writing fewer stories or taking that person, you know, off of reporting and putting them on a newsletter. Um, we really, really advocate for having a strong writer uh, on your newsletter and dedicating a lot of resources to making your newsletter a must read. We have found without a doubt that email is the number one vehicle for building loyalty and turning loyal readers into donors. And so we really, really prioritize the importance of finding someone on your team um, who can own that newsletter and give it voice and personality and passion. Um, and so that means taking them away from something else uh, oftentimes. Uh, and the same goes for the audience development person. I think we've you know, really helped sort of make that case now because we can tie top of the funnel growth to middle of the funnel loyalty growth to revenue. Um, and when you can make a case for revenue, you can usually sort of grease the skids, as they say, and and get <laughs> and get people to sort of um, understand why this is a good decision. Right. So, I mean, you've got a stonking good newsletter. You've got someone who's able to write it, has the freedom. They're not on the hamster wheel so much. Um, how do you then maybe turn people who are slightly skeptical, slightly distrusting into paying readers? How does that how does that funnel work? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's all about building habit and loyalty, right? We call it the relationship continuum. Um, we have this funny illustration of sort of of a, a horizontal timeline and you have your random hookups, the people who are just landing on your site from search and social uh, and word of mouth. And it's like, how do you build a relationship with them quickly enough where you get them in that newsletter? Um, so you someone lands on the site and they start to see calls to action saying, you know, don't let your social media feed decide what stories are important to you. Sign up for our weekly newsletter so you can understand the most important stories in your community. So then we get them in the newsletter. We're talking to them on a first name basis, either every morning or once a week. 
So we're starting to build that loyalty. There are surveys and other questions and interactive opportunities baked into that newsletter. So we're starting to get to know this person and little by little, they also get a welcome series that sort of explains who we are as a newsroom, who's the publisher, who's the editor, who's the audience person, who's the membership person. They're getting introduced to real live human beings through the course of our cultivation with them. So that by the time that sixth email hits them after six weeks of getting the newsletter, they not only feel like they know the newsroom, they know the people. And so it's not an institution asking them for money anymore. It's, you know, Felicia, the, the publisher who's already told them how hard it is to keep this running and why we need this particular person to invest in it. How long does it typically take to start seeing results? That's a great question. I think the it, it, it varies depending on how skeptical a, a reader is, right? And so um, those low-hanging fruit people convert immediately. We, we ask in a survey before we launch a campaign with an existing audience, we'll do an audience survey and we ask questions like, if we were to start a membership program tomorrow to help fund our reporting, what could we do to get you to invest in us? And the first option is just ask. I value what you do. The second option is help me understand why you need my money. And the third option is offer me some exclusive benefits. And the fourth option is I'll never donate to a news organization. No matter what you do, right. No matter what you do. We usually see about you know, 50, 60% of them saying, just ask or help me understand why you need my money. And that when we see that, we know that we're gonna have some quick success. When we see a lot of them saying no, then we know we need to dig more deeply into it and help them really understand the business model. Because frankly, news consumers can't be expected to understand the business model for journalism. They're trying to balance their own checkbooks, right? They're trying to deal with all of their their own uh, financial issues. So we have to really help them understand how it works and you know, we peel back the curtain. And that's part of the interesting uh, opportunity that we have as news organizations. And I think in the UK specifically, because you all haven't had to do that at the, to the same extent, there's a world of opportunity because you're journalists, tell your story. You know, we're great at telling other people's story, but, but newsrooms and journalists aren't great at telling their own story. And that's really what it requires. And, and I think once newsrooms in the UK start to realize that news consumers might be really fascinated by the fact that um, your revenues aren't coming in in the same typical streams as they were before. Um, and it might empower them as consumers to know they have a deeper role in funding reporting they care about rather than just being forced to pay for a subscription. You know, I think there's a lot more possibilities when you build a relationship and ask people to give what they think you're worth as opposed to putting a price tag on it and having just a transactional relationship. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. But at the same time, if you've got over 50% of your readers who say, just ask, doesn't a paywall seem like the quicker option and the easier option? But with a paywall, you're asking for a set amount. We're asking you to give $50 to $500. And our average volunteer donor last year gave $177 to to each newsroom. 
It's a good argument. Voluntary donations do not dictate a ceiling to contributions from readers. On the other hand, there is a subscription diet on the horizon given the current cost of living crisis we are all going through. However, it remains to be seen exactly what impact this will have on the media. Just about as many people will cut their new subscriptions in the year ahead as those who will add new ones, and that's according to the latest Reuters Digital News Report 2022. That holds true in both the UK and the US. So, should we really be worried about subscription diets? Mary is not so sure. What will make the biggest difference moving forward is how well news publishers can help readers see the value in an ongoing paying commitment. I'm worried if newsrooms cannot prove themselves essential. It's just like anything. We pay for a myriad of things. We don't go to the grocery and say, I'm only going to buy four vegetables. You're going to buy as many vegetables as you want to eat that look good to you that day, right? So I don't think most news consumers have this like idea that I will only pay for one news outlet. I think it's just not that simple. We have to earn it. And we can't expect people to pay for it just because we ask. Uh, I think there were so many important takeaways from the Reuters report that came out last week, and we have to listen and and be responsive and and react to the feedback that we're hearing that news consumers are overwhelmed and they're shutting down and they're selectively avoiding news and information. So I think we really run a risk of I'm not as concerned about the subscription diet as I am about us completely um, turning off entire generations of news consumers right now because we are serving them a bleak and overwhelming diet of depressing news information. I didn't expect that actually. Um, this idea that a continued practice over forced payment could result in a generational wide resistance to paying for news, and that's so much. The implications for that are so much greater than a, than a single transaction. Um, that's certainly something to think about. Um, as I think about my last question here, what would be your sort of single biggest tip to trying to turn around a distrustful member of your audience and, and to turn them into someone who will come back to you? What would you say, Mary? I'd say make it personal. I would say really strip everything back and ask yourself, what it, what would it take to build and earn the trust of of one person, right? And build a strategy accordingly, right? First, you need to ask them why you're distrustful of us and really understand and dig into that. It's gonna be meaty information, right? There's a lot of things that are baked into why people distrust uh, news organizations. And then you have to be able to address those issues and then you need to be able to demonstrate in your journalism and your reporting on a daily basis why your trust is warranted. And in doing that every single day, weave into the journalism and the reporting calls to action to get more involved, to either whether that's a newsletter or an event, um, get to know us, and then slowly begin to understand your role in supporting us and, and join us. It's, it's really that simple. It's, it takes commitment, just like any other relationship. Uh, it's not something that happens overnight. And patience, I would add. Patience and diligence. Mary, that's some super advice. Um, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. And uh, thanks for all of your insights. I appreciate it. I appreciate your interest. Good luck. Loads of useful tips to take away from this one. One, try to give and take with readers. Listen to their gripes. 
If you insist on a transactional relationship, you are unlikely to build trust. Two, be prepared for internal resistance from your newsroom staff if you want to do things differently. The change you need might ruffle a few feathers. Three, Mary talked about community language, so maybe consider dropping the formalities from time to time. And finally, focus on getting your readers onto a consistent, direct and personal platform. Newsletters are a good bet, but you could equally try a WhatsApp group, for example. What did I miss? I'd love to know about any ideas that you are testing out in your newsroom. You can DM or tweet me at JPG Journalism or the wider team at journalism.co.uk at Journalism News. If you'd like to feature on the show or you've got a topic or story you want us to cover on the podcast, please do get in touch. I'm on jacob at journalism.co.uk. And finally, if you like what you heard today, you can check out more of our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. That way, you won't miss our next exciting episode. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.